Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers and better hunters this week, guys. We have Steve Shirk out of Pennsylvania. So Steve is the owner and operator of Shirk's Guide Service. Check him out on Facebook. Um, young, hardworking guy, successful hunter, big time scouter. Uh, this is a, this is where we kick off our woodsmanship series. Brian had the awesome idea to come up with a series of podcasts where we discuss woodsmanship. You know, these days uh, we feel like it's fading out of style, if you will, and that that many people don't have it or should i should say not as many people have it as they used to you know with technology and everything else uh, it's easy to to i don't know get complacent or rely on the technology when you have it i know i do all the time and we just want to get some woodsmanship people on here and discuss and maybe help the listeners because this helps with habitat and vice versa if you can identify habitat and sign in the woods when you're hunting it helps with hunting they definitely go hand in hand. This is a great episode. We're going to cover, you know, where Steve Shirk is from, what he does, how he got into the outdoor space, um, describe the white-tailed deer habitat that he spends most of his time in. What's his approach to scouting deer? What type of habitat is he looking for? Um, beds, food, scrapes, rubs. And then we kind of get into how technology has changed a lot of what him and, and others do in this. So it's a great episode. Um, I feel like he's a lot like us. Uh, awesome conversation. Excited to get you guys this conversation here with Steve Shirk. So, 
prior to that, I want to talk about Vitalize Seed Company. So Vitalize Seed Company is a new company that we just launched, and that is our new seed partner here at the podcast. They are very simple and diverse mixes, a spring mix and a fall mix to help build your soil, to help cut fertilizer costs, to help reduce herbicide use, to help earthworms, to help your bucks grow bigger antlers, everything, nutrient density, it all comes how, how Mother Nature did it in the past. Um, it's very diverse and a very great and economical, you know, food plot mix per the acre. Check it out, vitalizedseed.com. I want to talk about our dealers this week. We have Lincoln Roan. You know, I know you guys know who he is. Owner of Packer Max, just north of Grand Rapids, Michigan. He has a pallet of seed waiting for anyone who is interested over there just off 131. Um, easy on, easy off. Stop in there, check it out. Check out his roller crimpers while you're at it too. Uh, this system is going to fit perfectly with Lincoln's roller crimper attachment on the Packer Max. So not only would I pack it in with a culture packer after I broadcast, because I don't have a drill at this time, I would also crimp the vegetation over top of it to terminate you know, the last fall mix into the spring or for planting the fall mix, terminate the spring mix on top to create that thatch layer we've talked about so many times. So check that out, guys. VitalizeSeed.com and Lincoln Rowan at Packer Max has a pallet here in Michigan if anybody would like to try it out. I know he's already sold a bunch, so we're going to have to get him a second pallet here soon. Uh, but give Lincoln a call. You can also use his Packer Max discount HPC25 on any of his Packer Max or Roller Crimper products. So get in there and tell Lincoln we sent you. I also want to thank First Light. So First Light Gear, if you're a big fan of uh, Meat Eater or Wired to Hunt, you've heard of First Light. We got partnered up with them last fall, spent all fall and winter using their gear, and I am a big fan. I always had Scentlock prior to that, Michigan Company, um, but never <laughs> felt warm. I thought I was doing the right thing by you know the scent-activated carbon or carbon-activated scent-free clothing, I should say. And uh, I just always froze my tail off. I'm a wimp. I'll be the first to admit it when it gets cold. But wearing the first light bibs and jacket last year, the solitude um, was awesome. The late season stuff is awesome. Check them out. Uh, they're great people. Steve Vanilla is from very close to my hometown. Mark Kenyon, great dude. Uh, everybody at, at Meat Eater Crew, we, we love following them and, and promoting them as well. But first light camo. High quality merino wool products as well. Check them out, firstlight.com, and we thank them for their support. I'd also like to thank the Habitat Hook, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Exodus Trail Cameras, Morse Nursery, Afflictor Broadheads, and the Squirrel at nutplanter.com. If you have not left us a good review on iTunes, please scroll down and hit that link. It'll take you right there or on the app you're listening to this podcast on. We love a good review. Leave your name, shoot me a message, info at habitatpodcast.com, whatever you want, and I will make sure to send you a free five-inch Habitat Podcast decal. That's all for now, guys. Um, really appreciate everybody who subscribed on YouTube. We're doing a lot there, and let's get right into it. Our first kickoff episode of the Woodsmanship Series with Mr. Steve Shirk. All right, everybody. We are back. We are in the very beginning of our Woodsmanship Series. Brian, what's going on, brother? 
Uh, not not too much at all. Just uh, had a nice weekend at the least. Got a few things done. And uh, excited to talk to you and get this uh, Woodsmanship Series going. Heck yeah, we got our special guest, Mr. Steve Shirk on the line. Before we get to him, I just want you, if you don't mind, let us know what this Woodsmanship Series is all about. Where did this come from? You know, this is your idea, throwing this whole thing together. Give us a rundown. What, what are we in for? Yeah, we get a lot of people that bring it up all the time about uh, technology and, and habitat improvements and how that's affected our woodsmanship skills as hunters. You know, we were we start to rely a lot on trail cameras and food plots and things like that. And uh, it's just interesting to, to have a conversation about it, especially for a guy like me that started hunting in 1986 when I was 12. You know, there was no cell cameras back then. Um, habitat improvement was kind of new. Uh, wasn't mainstream then. So kind of a fun conversation and, a, and an educational one. So uh, we can help some hunters out and maybe some new guys that are trying to improve their woodsmanship and, uh, you know, go from there. And we've, we've got a great lineup of guests uh, starting out with Steve here. All right, Brian. Well, why don't you kick us off then? Why don't you, um, you know, get this woodsmanship podcast series going? Absolutely. Steve, we appreciate you coming on, taking the time to chat with us tonight and uh, just give us a brief introduction, who you are, where you're from and what you do for a living. Sure. Yeah. No, well, once again, thanks for having me, guys. Um, so I'm located in northern Pennsylvania. Um, I've uh, grown and lived here my whole life. One of them guys that never uh, just kind of found home at a young age and never really dreamed about being anywhere else. Um, I do landscaping uh, for my main job, but most people know me uh, from my guide service called Shirk's Guide Service. I've been guiding whitetail uh, on public land for about 10 years now. Um, and it's, you know, it's gone pretty well for me. It's led me into doing like a lot of podcasts and, you know, with social media, sharing, you know, knowledge and especially, you know, big woods and public land hunting. So, uh, hopefully, uh, you guys will hit me on uh, some of them key points tonight and hopefully, uh, our listeners will get something out of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think they will. I'm sure many of them are familiar with you. You've you've been gracious with your time and your knowledge on social media and other podcasts and, uh, looking forward to diving into this stuff with you. So how did you get into guiding in the outdoor space that you're in? Yeah. Um, well, it was, there was no ever plan in my life. I never dreamed or thought of being a guide, but what I always had dreams of was I've always uh, had a love for outdoor writing. So I, I wrote for like my local newspaper and then I'd always look for, you know, different avenues and opportunities, uh, you know, to write. And there was a, a magazine called Northwestern Pennsylvania Outdoors that just came out and it was looking for new writers. Well, I started writing for them some and it went pretty well. And uh, they asked me to do an article about uh, grouse hunting in the Allegheny National Forest where I hunt. And even though I wasn't much of a grouse hunter, I mean, I hunted grouse a little bit, but <clears throat> being more of a whitetail hunter and grouse kind of share the same habitat as whitetails, I felt that I could still, you know, write a good piece about it. So kind of a long story short is I wrote that article about grouse hunting and they used to always put my email at the bottom of every article in case, you know, some of the readers would have questions. So one thing led to another and, uh, 
I've got flooded with emails for people wanting me to take them grouse hunting in the national forest. So <clears throat> I became a, a grouse hunting guide kind of like overnight, and that just kind of led me into the whitetail thing. Yeah, that's super interesting. You know, being a whitetail guy, <laughs> that's what everybody knows you for, but starting yeah. out like that. Uh, so did you do some deer guiding at the time you were doing the grouse, or did that come afterwards? Um, I mean, once I really started to notice that there was just a market for guiding, especially on public land, like the biggest hurdle that I felt I was faced with was, you know, Pennsylvania didn't have or really even now it's getting better, but never really had much of a reputation for, you know, for deer hunting or especially mature big deer. So I, I just, I guess, you know, it, it would hit the back of my mind some like, you know, should I try to do whitetail? And as I was guiding grouse more and more, even though I liked it, my passion has always been deer hunting. So I just, you know, one day I was like, what the heck, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to, you know, do, do something about, you know, you know, guide something I'm really passionate about. So I just <clears throat> said, what the heck with it? I got really nothing to lose here and started, you know, advertising. And, you know, it, it really, uh, it was a slow coming. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, and at first I took clients out for free. I would basically, they it also eventually got to a point where um, I would, you know, I would almost take any offer, take any, hunter and then slowly but surely just year after year the you know the more harder i worked at it um you know promoting the area uh even doing like social media posts about what i find my scouting i know you guys probably follow me so you see some of the stuff i do but eventually you know probably about say about five or six years into it it really just really started to get rolling for me and you know i i feel that i've been able to prove that you know we have pretty good deer here in Pennsylvania. And, uh, it, I've, since then I've had people from all over the country come and killed a lot of nice bucks, especially the past few years. And really, uh, the past two years I've been fully booked before uh, spring even started. I, I started, uh, rebooking like around the first of the year in the past two years before, like I said, we really even got into summer or late spring. I haven't had any spots left, so been pretty blessed with it lately. Well, congratulations on that, Steve. I, I think that's very awesome. You know, you. being a couple entrepreneurs here, we understand uh, what it takes <laughs> to to begin a business and and how bad you want it and and all the good things that go along with that. Um, yep. Congrats on being booked before spring in both years. That's awesome. And that means you're doing something right. So, um, you said something back in the beginning that I want to touch on real quick before we dive too much further, you said quail habitat or upland habitat and deer habitat are, are very similar. I heard that a very long time ago and I've never forgot that either. Um, what do you, how, how can you explain that to the listeners? What would you, how would you explain that? Yep. Well, I want to make sure I hit it right too. I'm talking grouse habitat. Upland grouse, grouse that was habitat. my bad. I'm but, sorry. Uh, yeah, that's okay. Just want to make sure we got that right. But yeah, so, um, I mean, just like a lot of other animals, you know, animals love cover, and grouse and deer especially are very similar in their uh, need for cover. Um, we all know that 
uh, especially big bucks, like almost pretty much the thicker, the better sometimes. And that's kind of the same thing with grouse. So, um, you know, I've always been the kind of guy that's always, you know, bouncing around clear cuts and different thickets, you know, scouting for big bucks. And so I've, at the same time, I'm, I'm bumping into, bumping into grouse all the time too. So, and that's why I knew, like I said, when the magazine asked me to write the article about grouse hunting, even though I probably only grouse hunted a few times a year, like I knew that I could explain just as much about grouse probably is, is what I was seeing with the deer because I'm seeing them in the same areas. So, you know, clear cuts, uh, certain kinds of brush, like we have beach brush, pockets of red brush, uh, wherever there's, uh, you know, sometimes you, you don't see it like on Google earth, but you'll have like a good understory of cover. Um, you know, anywhere you have good cover, <clears throat> you tend to have good wildlife. And that's very, especially the case with grouse and whitetails. And they share that a lot. So do you find yourself spending most of your time in, uh, hunting with your clients in that type of habitat? Um, pretty much. Uh, if we, if we have a good acorn crop, cause remember I'm hunting public land, big woods, so I have no control over food sources. Whatever mother nature gives us is what we get. We can't, you know, there's no baiting in Pennsylvania. So I have literally no control on, uh, what the deer are going to eat and sure. how they're going to react to that. But, um, if we have a good acorn crop or a good mask, crop of some kind you know sometimes you might get a good beech nut crop we also have you know black cherries and apples you know the food can also be a factor too um i kind of you know let that play its part but overall you know really like i mentioned the thing that that we have maybe not control of but we can count on more is you can count on the covers to be there every year and you can go back to the same covers and the same bedding areas. And, you know, a lot of them still continue to to keep thriving and producing. So I've really been more of a cover guy than someone that counts on food sources just because uh, I know I can rely on cover over food, you know, because I don't have control over it, if that makes some sense. Yeah, absolutely. So what other uh, advantages do you find besides the predictable cover in this type of habitat? Anything else that makes your job a lot easier? Um, I don't know if there's, if I've, if I can ever say my job's <clears throat> that, that easy. It seems like the harder I work at it, the the better my results. And I think that's the case with almost anything. Um, but you know, I think just one thing, you know, you got to keep in mind, uh, that I'm not an outfitter that, um, that, that owns land. And, you know, one of the biggest things you have to, you have to keep in mind when you're in, in my shoes or other hunters, um, and being on public land. So the more, um, I'm able to pattern other hunters and get away from hunters and find areas that are overlooked, that's where I tend to have, you know, my best results. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, that a lot of people especially overlook as well. Um, it's just, it's a whole different world when you, you know, when you're guiding and hunting on public land, but honestly, you know, hunting pressure, not that, you know, I don't ever want to see where, you know, there's no hunters, you know, I'm not, I'm not greedy, nor do I like to, the fact that, you know, that the, the sport might be dying in some areas, but if I can, find ways to get away because especially when you're hunting mature bucks, 
I always felt and believed that a mature buck always his number one thing on his mind is his security and that's mostly related to other hunters sure so we have a lot of small property owners that deal with that type of pressure too and maybe you can walk them through how you take advantage of uh, using other hunters and their mistakes or or maybe how they're setting up to your advantage yep and yeah that's i mean there's a lot of different things that i do um i'm one of those guys that I will literally, like, I'll go out of my way sometimes to, to get to a certain location. I've always believed that mature bucks pay attention on how hunters, you know, access and enter enter and exit, you know, different areas. <clears throat> you always want to just try to be different. Um, I rarely park at, like, you know, the main parking spots. A lot of times where I park, there's no parking spot, but yet I'll just find a way to squeeze the truck in there one way or the other paying attention to, uh, you know, where a lot of the roadways are, hiking trails. <clears throat> you just, you know, you just basically really just trying to pattern and you're almost scouting hunters just as much as you are the deer because the deer are constantly doing that as well. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like I've always believed that, you know, their focus is uh, is on the patterns that they're uh, learning from us. And then as soon as you do s- something a little bit different, you're able to, you know, often slip in on a good buck and basically completely fool him because he never expected, you know, to, to react that way. So Steve, a follow up to that, say you go into a, I don't know, thousand acre woodlot um, and you, and you pegged a couple, two, three guys. How many acres are you crossing out as a red zone for each hunter? Or maybe it's only one guy in the middle of nowhere, and okay, this guy yeah. hunts here. Like, like, what's your what's your threshold there? Um, I mean, I guess it, every scenario kind of plays out a little bit differently. Um, it's it's also one of those things that through time you it seems like hunters kind of share a lot of the same tendencies. Um, you know, a lot of guys aren't willing to go uphill. A lot of guys aren't willing to walk far. Uh, most people want easy. Uh, a lot of hunters are afraid to get right in the middle of thick, nasty cover. Um, so, you know, I can't say like, you know, I I see a guy in this area so that I'm going to set up a quarter mile away. I'm more of the kind of person, uh, you know, you guys might have heard me touch on this, like, I, I don't use a lot of satellite imagery for scouting, mainly not that I don't think it works. I think it works great, but everybody is doing that in my area anymore, and everyone's kind of looking for a lot of the same things. So I've learned to be more of like a boots-on-the-ground hunter. Um, I try to find things that you can't see, you know, on your phone, and you got to go out and find for yourself, especially when I brought up earlier, like uh, I hunt a lot of cover that's not, uh, you know, not always like clear cut that's going to show up on a map, but thick, thick understory that can't be seen from satellites. Um, just a lot of those different variables kind of, you know, compile into just being different overall. And, uh, I just, I'm without a doubt, if I, if I didn't have that mindset, I know I wouldn't have had the success that I've had so far. Yeah. And, and I know that you, you do put the boots on the ground. Um, every yep, time I yep. see one of your Facebook posts, I'm like, man, I should be out there more every single time. Uh, <laughs> what, 
<laughs> like how many miles are you walking a year? Give me a give me a rough estimate. I mean, I can just give you a rough estimate, but you know, a lot of I I try to get out, you know, a good five times a week. You know, five. I probably go on average like most days around four or five miles. So you're talking like you know twenty to thirty miles a week. To you know times you know fifty two weeks in a year, whatever that comes up to. I can't honestly. It's never really meant a lot to me. I'm sure a lot of other people would, but obviously, uh, you know, I'm going several thousand miles a year. That's for sure. So Steve, you mentioned. Uh picking up on some things that uh, you might not be able to see from a satellite image, like in the understory yep. changes of that. Could you walk us through what that looks like in your area? Absolutely. Yep. I mean, it's important to know the different types of cover in your area that, um, that, that do grow up like through the understory uh, because, you know, a lot of plants in that uh, can't thrive in the shade. Uh, but we have, uh, we have a specific cover and a few different ones, but my favorite is what we call beach brush. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of it, but basically it's just young beech trees, but they will, uh, they, they grow more in like brushy pockets together rather than like a single sapling. And the best thing about beech is that deer don't eat it at all. I mean, it can be the dead of winter and there's not a bit of food out there and you won't see a deer nibbling on a beech sapling. Uh, so that it, although it doesn't make for much of a food source, um, it makes for great cover and that cover cannot be seen through satellites. That's all boots on the ground. Another thing I love about beach brush is it holds its leaves similar, similar to like oak trees. So you also have like that leaf cover mixed in, which makes it more thicker. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of this kind of cover, what happens is like, we all know that throughout the spring and especially the summer, the woods, you know, they they're, they look way thicker than what they do in the fall. But you go into a beach thicket, you know, mid to late November, other than the leaf coloring changing some, it will still often look just as thick as it did in the summer. So it really, you know, serves a great purpose for cover. And another thing that will happen is like, a lot of the other cover in those areas will kind of open up after the leaves drop. So, you know, deer and even grouse and just like anything, uh, when that cover still is holding pretty thick, you know, it actually gets better throughout the year. But, it, you know, it's just important to know the the different types of trees and, you know, the what, what produces good cover because it's, you know, it's a little different in every area throughout the country. But, you know, that's just one little thing that you can, you know, try to try to get ahead of people because a lot of a lot of hunters aren't willing to put the boots on the ground and search for those kind of things. You know, it's so much easier to just sit on the couch with a with a beer in your hand and just scroll your phone and make a game plan that way. But when you're hunting public land and, you know, you're sort of competing with a lot of other hunters, uh, you got to be able to, to, to be different and. You know, not that I'm trying to do better than them, but the, as far as the, the competition, meaning uh, I have to be a little bit smarter and work harder or else, uh, you know, my success is going to be way less. So you mentioned something there about about beach brush, and we've talked about that on the podcast a couple of times before. Um, my new hunting property in northern Michigan is full of it. And okay. uh, just have just have a follow up question. Would you? focus on that over 
maybe at Oak Ridge. Um, okay. Or, or are they two different things in your mind? Is the beach brush to cover and the Oak Ridge is, is the food? Um, yep. What, I mean, it, can, it all depends on where it's at. Like, I've had bucks that bedded in beach brush but would feed a mile away on an Oak Ridge. Um, if there's a lot of times, though, you'll have beach brush mixed in with the oak, and it can it can kind of work both ways for you. Like, you can really get tight tight on a buck and pattern him pretty easily because he'll just stay in that cover, you know, all day and go from oak tree and oak tree and, you know, bed to bed and just kind of have the best of both worlds. But, you know, the problem there is he's, you know, hardly moving at all, too. It, you know, it, it depends on every area, but most of the time, most of the bucks that I find tend to have a bedding area and a feeding area. And I, nine out of 10 times, except maybe during the heat of the rut, I'm usually set up more around those bedding covers than I am a food source. Now, is there a certain time of day or time of season that you're patterning that uh you going after in the mornings for coming back to bedding areas or how are you approaching that if it's um if it's like an early season hunt i'm more of like an evening hunter around bedding i uh, i've i found that a lot of bucks even go in their bedding areas before daylight i think you have a lot better chance of getting that buck to come out or to move a little bit more that last roughly hour to half hour if it's early season you know of daylight i'm talking but you know if it's like during the rut i think it can be a little bit different you know obviously bucks are moving almost any time of day that time of year and another thing that i've learned if if it's like a consistent doe bedding area and does will especially bed in like beach brush what i've learned a lot about does is they they tend to go to bed quite a bit later than bucks and you can often slip in there before the does even come in and the bucks have learned that in time too like a lot of those those thickets can be really good about 9 to 11 a.m you know you're not seeing much at all early and just when you're about ready to get down when you think you're not going to see anything you know here here comes deer movement so i think it's all based on time of the year um but uh Either way, uh, you know, you can definitely have success if you if you just kind of know what the deer are doing based on the time of the year. Sure. So is there any times that you'll jump in there on a morning in early October, or do you just kind of focus on the evenings and, until something changes your mind? When it, when I, if it's like that time of year, the, you know, one of the main things I would probably focus on more, especially in the morning, if you have one of them like – real cold frosty mornings or you know you get a cold front rolling through i i think you know from my observations bucks move way differently and more actively especially in the day you know during those those magical you know october cold fronts if it's just an average day though you know 65 degrees and you know not much going on with mother nature i i'm probably just leaning on in not going out in an area like that in the morning and rather do some scouting elsewhere or even get some work done. Sure. So I know you're out there learning every day, but a lot of people would agree that you've kind of got that home territory figured out where you're comfortable. Have you ever found yourself traveling to a different area where that you've had to change up your outlook and uh, maybe struggle a little bit in some, in some other oh, location? 
Absolutely. Um, it seems like, you know, in this area where I hunt, a lot of places look the same, but yet the deer doing things differently. And that's based on so many different things. Once again, how I brought up when I, you know, when you hunt the the public land and the big woods, you know, that I'm hunting, you know, I keep bringing it up, but you have zero control really over getting deer to, to move the way you want them to, to, to feed in certain areas, even to bed in certain areas. And um, it seems like every area is a little bit different. You can do something in one area and another area might be similar, but yet the deer are doing things differently because even though the area seems similar, there's really no place exactly the same. Food is going to be set up a little bit differently. Wind is going to blow differently. Um, the, you're going to have water in different spots. So it, you know, honestly, I can't just say that like it's only happened once. It seems like every area and especially every time I go into a new area, it's like I'm going in partially blindfolded and you almost have to just start from scratch. And that's why I really love this time of year. Like there's so many areas that, um, that I'm, you know, what my main focus on is this time of year, it's just learning areas more thoroughly. I I feel like that's the best thing to, to take advantage of postseason scouting, um, learning where all the food sources are, uh, getting just a super good feel on how the deer travel through those areas, you know, trails and, and rub lines, all that stuff is still very noticeable this time of year. And then basically just compiling all that information, you know, towards next season. And sometimes it takes a few years to really get a feel on an area. So uh, I can just tell you to answer your question, that happens almost every time. Steve, and, and not trying to, to get you to, you know, admit any shortcuts or anything like that, but if you're going into a new area, or even some of your your main areas. You mentioned beach brush being one of them. Can you yep. give us maybe the top two, three habitat types with that when you see you get excited? Uh, and then sure. and maybe after that we'll we'll roll into you know postseason scouting or scouting into our next part here. Yeah. Um I mean used to be and it it's still one of my favorite places. I, I love to hunt clear cuts. Um clear cuts like especially the right age class, like that three to six year size, like those age classes of clear cuts, like, are just big buck magnets because like, I mean, we all, we all think that, you know, big mature bucks like to cover a ton of ground, but really outside of the rut, they're completely opposite of that. They, if they have a place where it's plenty thick and inside of that thick, they can just, eat and pack on those fat reserves and get old and nobody's ever going to go in there like we have those kinds of places um and uh just because you know they're nasty thick and they're they're just it's a lot of them are filled with like blackberry briars and raspberry and even if you do go in there you're probably going to wind up needing stitches when you come out so uh i love those kind of places um but you know once again the problem is is finding more and more people hunting them just because they're so on every every satellite map anymore it it not only shows the clear cut but it tells you exactly you know when it was made and you know it's just that's where the technology might on public land it, it might be uh having some negative effects on you know my areas 
Um, but they're still overall probably my number one. Like I've seen more big bucks in those kind of areas over the years than any other. And I'm not totally giving up on them, but you know, I'm always watching out for other hunting pressure because as soon as you start to put other guys around another area, and unfortunately, I mean, I'm not bragging, but a lot of people, they just, <clears throat> they don't, they don't pay attention to, you know, how they scout, how they access. You know, a lot of guys are just really careless about things. And even if you're doing everything right, their presence in there is going to ruin it for you. So, you know, I, if I, if I find an area like that, that's not getting hunting pressure, you know, I'm, I'm smiles for the whole season. Um, secondly, um, I would probably have to go to, like I said, those beach brush thickets. Um, I love them so much just because they're overlooked. Um, a lot of times, especially it's weird and I don't really have the best answer for this, but I tend to not see as much buck sign in those thickets. I mean, bucks do rub on beach. I don't think they love it, but a lot of times it just, it doesn't really look like there's a lot of buck activity in there, but yet there is. Uh, you kind of have to focus more on ground sign, uh, a lot of droppings and tracks and trails, beds. Like that's kind of what I'm looking for. And especially I've just had spots, you know, those thickets that I've counted on every year that even though I don't see much sign, you know, running cameras around them, I'm always noticing there's there's a good buck hanging in those spots. You said three, so I would say number three would be like a remote oak ridge, um, especially during the rut. I, I do like to hunt around food in the rut if it doesn't get much pressure because, you know, a lot of times that's where your does are going to be around here, wherever we have food and, you know, where you have does, you have bucks in the rut. But once again, if it's if it's easy access, even in the rut, a lot of our deer, even does, won't even hit a food source in the in the daytime just because of hunting pressure. So if you can find a remote patch of oak somewhere, uh, it can be a gold mine in the rut. So those would probably be my top three. Well done. Nicely answered. <laughs> I think that's a great answer. Um, it's, it's really, I find myself sitting here nodding my head. Like, I feel like you're in northern <laughs> Michigan. I like... <laughs> You sound like you're hunting in northern Michigan on state ground, which is kind of cool. Uh, I think that you guys awesome. have probably more relate. topography, but uh, and we sure. we chase the, the clear cuts. We have the beach brush. Um, what's interesting, though, I didn't know beach brush was such a good bedding area. I mean, the brush itself, I get it. It's covered, and that's king in my eyes as well. Um, yep. It's great to hear that. So when you're – I guess we're kind of transitioning now. When, when you're scouting – uh, you scout a lot, as we covered. Um, yep. You know, where do you tend to focus on? Where do you start? Maybe keep it, you know, kind of kind of basic for us, and then we can yep. find some techno technological stuff that uh, kind of the crux of the conversation here. Sure. Yep. So if I'm, you know, once again, maybe say it's a new area and I'm postseason scouting, <clears throat> number one is I'm trying to figure out, even though, your first year going into it, it's a little bit tricky, but I'm usually trying to factor in some hunting pressure. Most importantly, if it's, if it's more of a remote area, then I'm not really as concerned about hunting pressure because most likely, you know, it's not, it's not going to be hunted that hard because it's remote, but I, I try to, I try to figure out, you know, where's the, where's most of the pressure going to come from uh, where do I think hunters are setting up? I love to keep an eye out for like old tree stands. You know, a lot of hunters, even here, even though it's public land, 
leave their stands out year round. Some people hate it. I actually like it because I'd rather know where a guy's going to be hunting than for me to just do a ton of scouting, set up, and then bam, two weeks before season, someone else sets up beside me. So <clears throat> I love it when I see other people's tree stands. And I try to, you know, factor in, you know, I, I cross everything off where I feel there's going to be, you know, a good amount of hunting pressure. And then before I even uh, do anything after that, um, I try to, you know, put the boots to the ground and, and I, you know, I'm looking for bedding areas more than food sources just because, like I told you before, I can't count on food sources. And you can have like a you know, a productive acorn crop here one year and you'll see buck sign that will just make you drool. And then you think, okay, next year I know where I'm going to be. And you go in there and there's not an acorn on the ground. And including that, there's not one bit of deer sign. So, you know, the food source game is one of those things you have to just play in more year to year, season to season. But you can usually, like I said, count on the cover to keep producing um, so I look for those, those batting covers, you know, where's, where are my beach thickets? Uh, I might still factor in the clear cuts in that area. And I'm also, since you guys know, I'm, I'm hunting hill country. Um, I, most of my focus is higher elevations, even, you know, at least the upper third and, and more, uh, that's where I tend to find the majority, even doe bedding, especially most of our deer are bedding up high, but definitely most of our bucks are bedding up high. So, uh, you know, I'm eliminating a ton of ground and uh, focusing and looking for those, you know, higher elevation uh, sections of cover. And then if I, you know, if I find the cover, then I'm looking for looking for buck sign and, and beds. And, you know, I'm not sure how far you want me to ramble on with that. I can keep going more and more unless you want to add, add to the questions. No, I think I think we've hit that fairly well here. I just want to make sure that that we have uh, all the woodsmanship advice we can get here. So yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to touch on real quick because I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going overboard. But I'm also looking for you know if I a lot of times if I if I find good sign, uh, maybe I find a big shed, just something that that makes me definitely want to pursue that area then i'm looking for how do the deer get around in these areas uh you know since since we were in a lot of mountainous terrain it's not like the deer go through areas almost any direction like the terrain features uh you know you're you'll you'll see where deer are using you know saddles benches the topography so you know um, if i definitely find you know, evidence uh, that it's holding big, you know, a big buck or maybe several, then I'm putting the boots on the ground and finding how are these bucks moving through these areas, walking trails, looking for big sign on those trails, and even getting cameras out months in advance. I'm, I think you guys know I do that as well. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Uh, you touched on clear cuts, Steve, and Jared and I, we have a lot of clients uh, through our land plan services where we either go out in person and help them improve their property or uh, digitally we help them, yep. you know, if they're too far away or if that's an option they want to do, but we can never convince people to cut enough. You know, we try to, <laughs> like we talked about with the, with the grouse and the deer sharing that, that uh, bird habitat kind of run us through a quick, um, 
uh, idea of how you see those deer relating to those clear cuts, like year one, year two, and maybe yeah. when the best times is to, to focus on those? Well, the good thing about, like, you can tell your, your listeners and your clients, like, every clear cut, every age, until it's completely fully grown in mature timber, everyone serves a pretty good purpose for whitetails in general. They, they make great whitetail habitat you know, at almost every age class, you, you know, you, you cut over an area and this is especially what I would do if it were me and I was going to develop a property like this. I would, I would prefer to cut that area in the winter time because I'm not a wasteful person that those treetops will make an excellent food source for deer in the winter. Um, I don't care, you know, where you are in whatever part of the country in the winter, you're going to have less food than any other time. And you'd hate to see all the those tips on those trees go to waste. So I would recommend, if I thought about clear-cutting an area, I would have it cut, you know, late fall or through the winter. That way the deer could even, you know, feed on the tops. Then even that first year, <clears throat> even the first few months right after that, you're going to already see, maybe not so much for wood growth, but you're going to see grasses and, and weeds and different <clears throat> different like grass-like plants that are going to already start coming because you're getting, you know, plenty of sunlight through that area. And even by late summer, you're going to see some, a little bit of regrowth of, of saplings, very little, but some. So going into that fall, you're already going to have a uh, natural food plot for deer in your area. That's just the first year. And then it does take, uh, you know, two to three years. And, you know, this this definitely varies. Like, I will say, you can never guarantee anyone that a, uh, that a clear cut is going to grow back to a certain height at a certain rate. I swear there's so many different factors between deer numbers in that area, um, weather, like acid rain, soil conditions. Um, so every clear cut is going to grow a little bit differently. But unless you... You know, if you don't have a hundred deer per square mile where they're going to completely overbrowse that, it's going to start to come back in a few years. And usually anywhere from that, you know, three to five age class, that clear cut is going to become the most productive and preferred area probably in your hunting area because you're going to have cover and food within uh, I brought that up before, especially, and like, especially if you want to have mature bucks on your property, uh, you're going to have big deer move in there, and that's almost going to be like a sanctuary for them. Uh, their natural tendencies are thick cover, and then when you start throwing food in the bedroom, just like in my own bedroom, if, if there's snacks in the bedroom, I'm going to be staying in there a lot more watching TV or whatever you throw, right. you throw food near my bed and I'm, I'm a pretty happy guy. So, uh, I think, uh, I think a mature buck is, has, has a lot of the same thoughts when it comes to that. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, that three to five year period, and that varies a little bit, that can really be some of your best hunting and holding for mature bucks as, as those clear cuts start to age, um, there's still often good cover, but a lot of that, that food, um, the, the, the browse height starts to get too high or it might be somewhat over browsed and then kind of whatever trees are left over start to grow up and it still makes great cover. Even I know some clear cuts, like I'm not even exaggerating. I know clear cuts that are over 20 years old that are still holding good bedding grounds. 
So um, you're still always, you know, until that clear cut gets, you know, maybe 30 years old in some areas, you're still always going to have something on your property where it's going to host uh, at least a good bedding area. So, you know, you've after you've done a clear cut, you've got potentially 20 some years of productive whitetail habitat through that whole process. Plus, you know, a lot of people, um, you'll get it cut and uh, you're making money off of the timber too. So there's just, you know, a lot of people are so afraid to, you know, to, to do clear cutting. Even there's people, uh, you know, we, where I'm at here in public land that hate to see logging because they don't, they don't trust the mother nature and the environment to regenerate and, Really, nine out of ten times, it only becomes a better place after it's been clear cut. Like, it's going to serve as better habitat than just leaving it the same old mature natural forest. Sure. Yeah, I appreciate you going into that detail. And uh, hopefully some of our stubborn clients will hear that. And <laughs> maybe get their get a the little more gas for the chainsaw. So. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to transition into uh, the technology segment the series sure. that we're going to be talking about. And, uh, you had already mentioned you kind of shy away from the digital scouting cause it's so popular and you get a lot of boots on the ground. Um, yeah. is there any technology that you incorporate into your, uh, scouting or your hunting with your clients? Um, I mean, if I, I don't know if this counts, but do trail cameras count as technology or are we more talking about like, you know, satellite imagery, the, that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I obviously you guys know, but I'm like a, a trail cam nut. Um, I have learned more from running trail cameras than than almost anything I've done. People um, <clears throat> totally overlook, and actually, they don't get the best out of their trail camera use. Every trail camera photo provides ten more points of information than most people. You know, everyone thinks, okay, I got a picture of a big buck. At least I know now there's a big buck in the area and they think that, um, you know, that's the main use when you have direction of travel, you have the date and time where you can look back and, okay, what possibly caused that deer to move? Um, and I can just go on and on, but there's so much information you can get off of even just one trail camera photo, um, that it's, it's like, you know, even though I'm in the woods so much, throughout, you know, basically the whole year, but, you know, running those trail cameras, especially year round, like those are just hundreds of extra sets of eyes that are constantly teaching me, um, about the deer that I'm hunting, the areas that I'm hunting and how the deer move through them. Um, they've really become like, I, I, I kid you not other than, than, uh, if I, if I could only have two things to go hunting with, it would be, my weapon, whether it's gun or bow season and, and a trail camera, I could, I would, it doesn't matter what kind of camo I wear, how good a rain gear I have. It would, I would have to have a weapon and a trail camera and I'd probably be out there bare, barefoot. I think I'd sacrifice my boots on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's well, how a, much I count on them. Yeah. And, uh, Jared and I are, are about in that same boat also. And, uh, I guess it's fair to say you're, you're both feet in, jumping in with the trail camera technology. Absolutely. I uh, And, I mean, it's getting better and better. Um, I know, obviously, we see some states are 
starting to draw the line. Um, right. I, right. And for me, I, I don't, I just quickly, I'll touch on that. I, and I think in most States, I really think it's, it's over exaggerated. I don't believe, especially where I'm from trail cameras or any bit of a problem at all. Um, I take my six-year-old son out in the woods, you know what he asks, hey, dad, can we check some cameras? Like, it's a way to, it's an encouragement for hunters. It it makes you want to hunt more uh, when you can't be in the woods and you know your trail cameras are out there for you. It's an added pleasure to hunting. Um, It creates more drive. It makes us better hunters. And I don't think to a point where all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're killing too many deer and, you know, there's still a lot of great deer and, and big bucks being taken every year in this whole country. So um, I think trail cameras are 10 times more of a, of a positive thing than a negative thing in most places. So um, I never, I never really worry about, you know, the ethical side of that, but um, you know, like, you know, you talk, maybe you bring up cell, cell cameras. Um, another tremendous tool, I think uh, now, now you have that constant, you can you can be notified immediately, and I don't you know I'm not one of them guys though that I get a picture of a big buck uh, you know I'm just gonna jump the gun and and hunt there. That's not my real need for a cell camera. What I like about cell cameras the most is I have eyes in the woods yet I don't have to put my presence my scent. I'm not disturbing any any deer with you know with me being in there. I can let them do the scouting for me. And then when I do get the results that I'm looking for, I can slip in, you know, much more unexpectedly without the deer ever knowing that, you know, I was kind of catching on to them. Right. Yeah. So walk us through real quick what your strategy is for your trail cameras. Do you sort of blanket an area or do you have a, a more specific uh, approach to doing it? Um, my Yeah, my trail cameras are mainly more like in pockets and clusters. I tend to do better that way than like, spreading them out. Um, I tend to find that, you know, in every area, say if, uh, you know, if I'm in a section, maybe say it's roughly like 50 acres and I might have 15 cameras in that 50 acres and, you know, they're somewhat in a cluster. I'll often find that maybe three to five of those cameras are really productive and, you know, 10 to 10 to 15 or whatever really aren't. And, and some of them I expected to be productive, but you're able to like really narrow down how deer are using a certain area. Like you might see the sign and everything that that you want to see. So you think, well, I'm going to throw a camera in there, but you throw six to eight cameras in there at least, then you really start to see what's going on. You're able to eliminate much more. Um, it's, I seem to do better when I, when I, set them up in clusters versus like, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of acres here. If I just, you know, if I put a camera every three miles, I, I think I'd have a lot less success that way rather than just really honing in on an area and, you know, and figuring out what the deer are doing. Steve, you mentioned clusters and I just listened to you on a pod, a different podcast. I can't remember which one, unfortunately. Uh, where you kind of dove into this, so help me remember exactly what a cluster is, what that looks like to you. Uh, you're in, you're in, you know, big woods most of the time. So, um, terrain, trail, scrape, rub. What does a cluster look like to you? Yep. Um, most of my clusters. Um, first of all, like 
I'll if I I always have a camera at every stand site. Yet I don't rarely check. I don't check those cameras a lot because I never like to let deer know that or want to let deer know that a human is going through that spot a lot. Because I brought up earlier how I've learned that especially mature bucks they're constantly patterning human activity. So um, I'll have cameras in that cluster that I would be willing to check every day that are further back from bedding, maybe like down in a creek bottom on a community scrape where a lot of different deer are coming in and uh, just maybe getting a drink of water every night. Uh, Mainly, I'll check cameras more often where I feel there's more night activity. And the more I get into daytime activity areas in the cluster, I don't check those ones as often um, because I'm trying to preserve those areas uh, and not let deer know that that I'm going to be coming in there. Um, and, and I just, you know, I strongly believe that, uh, you can still count on those cameras that are further back to at least give you an idea of what's still in the area. But then, you know, maybe, you know, if I, uh, if I'm seeing a cold front come through and, and, you know, and it's like mid October, I might slip in and do a full camera check just like one day and gather all that information for when I really think it's going to be some prime hunting ahead. And then, you know, out of like maybe those 15 cameras or however many I had, uh, whatever seems to be the most productive, you know, between that camera check is, is where I'm going to hunt. So do you see any downsides to your camera usage or do you see any hunters that might be using them the wrong way? You know, I can't say I pay a lot of attention to how other hunters are using cameras, um, but you know, I I I truly feel because I I've done it in a lot of different ways, um, and I think some of this just kind of came accidentally. Like you start throwing cameras out in pockets, and and I really just it's like wow, I'm I can't believe that the deer are way more active only a hundred yards away when this other trail or scrape or whatever I was focused on looked just as good, but yet I'm not getting the activity, you know, and just in a, in a, in a small amount of ground in between, like, I, I, I really think that that is the way to do it in, in, in these bigger woods. Um, I can't say it'd be the proper way to do it, especially, you know, in smaller chunks of private land. Um, but, uh, Overall, I guess to answer your question, I, I just believe through my experience, if really if hunters aren't doing this in, in my scenario, um, I do think that they're, that they're probably not having the same success and results that I'm having. Sure. Yeah. So there's, there's basic, there's a basic understanding of, of woodsmanship and, and deer yep. sign and deer behavior that you have to have before you even get out there and, and put your cameras down. And that's, that's, that's kind of what we're trying to cover here with this series is trying to get people to think about, you know, thinking about how to approach that and, and using the technology to go hand in hand with some of the old school techniques that, that you find, you know, where to put your cameras. Yeah. And absolutely. And even though like, um, you know, I don't use satellite imagery to, uh, to really learn places, um, I'm sure you guys, I think you know that, that I'm part of Spartan Forge and I, I use that app a lot. And, um, 
like I still put cameras on my phone, like mark down where all my cameras are. If I find big buck sign, you know, I'll mark rubs, um, all trail scrapes, you name it, anything worth notable you can, you can use with that app. And I'm sure you can with a lot of other apps too, but you can, you know, you can really gain a lot by marking all that stuff down and using technology that way. Um, I just, uh, when it comes to, to the starting point and finding areas, I've just believed that by doing it boots on the ground and finding harder to get to areas, uh, and stuff that, that you just have to look for, uh, with, with, uh, you know, maybe I should say, uh, wearing off the boot leather. Like I feel like, in public land you, anymore, you have to be doing a little bit more that way if, if there's a good amount of hunting pressure around. But you can still use the, all the technology in another way. Um, like I said, it's not that I don't use it. Sure. Yeah. So I don't think the mapping apps are, are as controversial as, as some of the trail camera uses, especially the, the cell cameras. Yeah. I mean, you go back in the day, I can remember people drawing maps of their hunting areas and marking things. It's just it's just a more convenient way to do that. I can't imagine anybody having any problem with the mapping softwares that are out there right now. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that's far from unethical. I mean, we we do so much with our cell phones anyways. I mean, why not open the door for using them for hunting? Um, yeah, I feel like if I don't have my phone with me that I'm missing like a body part or something. Like I can't leave the house without it. So, uh you know, now that we're all able to use it for, you know, for hunting, I, 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 uh, I, I guess it only, it only kind of goes with, with, uh, today's era and today's age. Um, you can basically, like I said, you can, you can start your car with your phone. You can lock your house doors. Uh, obviously it would only make sense that we could use them for hunting. I'm with you there, Steve. That makes sense to me. Um, I'm a fan as well especially the part with, with a lot of this stuff where you can not leave scent on the ground. So that's number one for me, but what, what do you find is unethical? Um, I have a couple other things I want to touch on for some of the traits you might see in a, in a true woodsman. Uh, and they might laugh at all of us, you know, we're talking about this type of thing, but what do you find unethical or what have you seen out there that you're kind of like, eh, not sure how I feel about that. Technology wise, unethical, you mean? Is that what you're sure. saying? Sure. Yeah. Cause I think, I mean, um, I think, I, I think so. Yeah. That's where I want to go with that. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, I don't want to say that there's really anything out there that I'm like, you know what, ban that. But there's things that like I haven't used um, that I'm just almost like, I like, I always want hunting to be challenging. I think I'm driven as a hunter and a mature buck hunter because there's a certain amount of challenge to it that I'm drawn to. I like to challenge myself. I'm sure you guys are. So as soon as you start to take that challenge away, my desire starts to to fade away. So I kind of draw my own line. Um, Like one thing that I've never used, um, I'm really not fully against, but like I, and, and I don't even know for sure if it works, but like I don't use ozonics. Um, I've never actually really tried it though, but I can't say that, um, that I don't like, uh, even though in some ways I wish I could eliminate my scent, but like in some ways I almost don't want to do that because 
if you totally eliminate your scent and really for sure there's a way to do that, I feel like my advantage over deer may be a little bit too much. I know once, like you said, some people are probably going to laugh, but like, I like to know that, you know, that it, it, I'm, I can't say I've ever been in a tree stand and felt like I was above level over a mature buck. I still feel like their levels above me, but yet I kind of always wanted to stay that way. So I think, um, the scent game, uh, I kind of, and, and maybe you guys know, maybe you don't, I actually, you know, I don't use any scent products anyways. Um, can't say I've tried them all, but I haven't had a lot of success with the scent control game. But that would be one thing anyways, no matter what. If there was a way I could truly eliminate my scent, I I feel like I don't know if I'd want to do that. And that's just my own opinion. But um, I I just, I find like, geez, you know, that's that's a deer's number one resource for survival. You know, are we, could we be getting overboard with that? That's that's just, you know, a certain opinion of mine. I think also, like, um, eventually, like, especially they say, like, with some of these crossbows, um, once again, I haven't tried them, but if we are shooting deer at 100 yards someday with a crossbow, I think we might, I don't know if that's quite something that I'm interested in, just for the fact that, like, what I like most about archery is the up-close game of it. Um I, I, if anyone's never experienced it, you get a mature buck, you know, within 20, 30 yards of you. It's a feeling that, you know, I've done a lot of fun things in my life and a lot of things that made my adrenaline flow, but I can't say I've ever felt something like that experience. That's part of my favorite thing about bow hunting is, is that up close. So, uh, I don't mind a somewhat close of a shot, um, Maybe whether it's right or wrong that, you know, someday we're going to kind of take away that, that close encounter part of it. That's to each his own, but that's something that I think could go overboard. Um, but you know, as far as trail cameras go, if I want to bring that up a little bit, I mean, as of right now, I, to me, I, I really don't feel it's that unethical. Um, like another thing is I'm always looking for ways to, to encourage hunters and, and keep, keep the sport thriving. And like I brought up before, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we have somewhat of an advantage with trail cameras, but I still don't believe that, uh, you know, we're ahead of deer. We have more of an advantage with them when, when a guy can, can, you know, be at home and, use have have cameras out cell cameras especially with the price of gas these days you know maybe hundreds or thousands of miles away and still able to watch his property on them i mean it's not like he's going to be able to pack his bags up and be there and within a half hour after that deer passed by a stand so um if touching on that i'm still i'm, I'm not anywhere close of thinking the trail camera game is anywhere from unethical from from a whitetail hunting standpoint yeah all all reasonable expectations and explanation and uh you know the crossbow argument you know that's been beat to death i live in pennsylvania as well steve and we've been down that road for years but uh sure. you know we're not picking on those guys that, that choose to use that but i think it's a fair discussion the points that you brought up and 
talking about yeah. in in close challenges and not having to draw when the deer gets close. I mean that that can make or break you sometimes. So oh, definitely absolutely definitely a fair discussion and a fair fair points that you made and something to think about for sure. Yep, like I said, I uh, um, I I'm not even saying that I think any of those things are maybe wrong, but I think we are getting closer and closer to unethical with, you know, some, th- especially with some of the weapons we're using. Um, so hopefully, you know, eventually we'll draw the line somewhere. I, I'm actually, I'm not against crossbows at all. Like, I feel like if Pennsylvania was what it used to be and maybe where you hunt, it's different, but like we have a decline in hunters in our area and, you know, in some ways it's good, but in more ways it's bad. And if, uh, John Smith, who's been hunting all his life, uh, is having, especially having a little trouble pulling back his, his compound and that crossbow keeps him out there in November. I mean, or whatever, uh, I find, I try to look for how are we helping the sport and hurting it. And as long as we're not getting too crazy and creating much more of an advantage, uh, above the, the game we're hunting, then, then I'm usually all for it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, I tell my dad all the time, I'm like, I know you can draw a regular bow back, but would a crossbow get you out in the woods more? If so, pick one up. You know, it's, it, exactly. I'm with you. We, yep. we have enough things going against us. We don't need to uh, yep. gang up on that stuff. Um, yeah, and, and even then, like, yeah, you know, your... like young young kids, I think a crossbow especially yeah. is great for, for, you know, we have like the mentors – system going on you know you get a 10 year old kid a lot of those kids can't pull back enough poundage for for a compound to kill a whitetail so uh let them start out with a crossbow and and it doesn't matter and and i'll be honest with you there's times i i use a crossbow too um i hope it doesn't upset anyone but i uh i'm also not one of those guys that's taking crazy wild shots um i just you know i feel that as long as i play by the rules and in my heart I'm doing what's right you know I'm good with that yep I'm with you I um I personally have never shot one but I am actually in the market for one for my my girls or twins they're eight and they're they're petite they're little you know they can't pull very much poundage back yet and I I want them when they do make their first shot to be confident so um if any of the listeners have a good you know, youth brand or a, a brand that a youth can use, let me know. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to pick one up, but yeah, I, like whatever gets people out in the woods more, whatever gets people hunting more. I, I, I mean, we can joke about it and this and that, but like, I don't, it doesn't bother me one bit, you know, same with the, same with the trail cameras. You know, if, if you use them and I do uh, sell cameras, that's great. If not, that's great too. You still gotta get out there and kill that buck. So Oh, and, and I mean, you're talking to a guy that runs hundreds of cameras, and I'm I'm telling you, it it helps. Yes, and I and I mean, I I oh yeah, I would never want to give up on them, but I I just know from from the bottom of my heart, really, like the the amount of work, the the challenge, I'm I'm still way behind mature bucks, and I I um I can I feel like I hunt. I can hunt 90 days out of the year and use all the products available and all the technology yet. I still feel like in those 90 days, there might be one or two days for a chance of success. Like we're still at that point in a lot of places. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I'm in, and I'm, I'm glad you said that. I feel, you know, when you, when you get the picture to your phone or on your FC card, no matter what, it's in the past, right? It's in the exactly. past. It already happened. You might be able to catch them that night or that next morning. And, and that's happened. Okay. I've done that. But at the same yep. time, your camera history from the year before to me is more valuable because you know when to be there ahead of time versus reacting right you're proactive so i yeah i I like your stance on that i i mean i feel like i have a lot in common with you um (laughs) good no i've had a great time talking to you guys yeah and we're gonna go down one more little path here before we we wrap this for you what other traits do you find in good woodsmen um i i can name a couple things that I see or don't see when we're with clients on their properties. Uh, some guys have it, some guys don't, and that's great. Um, like, what what would be your top five things to say? Hey, if you know how to do A, B, C, D, and E, you are you're on your way. Uh, I guess what would those things be? It doesn't have to be five, but you know what I mean. I yeah, I'll I'll try to think of five as I'm going through, but I'm going to tell you one thing that especially being a guide, like some people think like if you're a guide, you're never around good hunters when really um, being a guide and being around so many different hunters has made me a better hunter because every hunter that I've ever guided, just about every one I've learned something from. But my point is, is that this is something I've learned and I don't think many people have caught on to this. Some people might think I'm crazy, but I'm going to say it is, there's a sense, there's a gut feeling sense that some hunters have and some don't. And I, but it's a true thing. Um, it's not a sense though, that unfortunately you're going to learn through this podcast, but there is a, there's a sense that I'm telling you, some guys have it. Some guys don't when it comes to, am I in the right area? Do I need to hunt this stand again? Some hunters have senses, um, and, and in my opinion, it's part of a woodsmanship type thing, but there's, there's these gut senses that some hunters have learned to develop and they're the best hunters. Um, just, just being able to read, read the woods and just, and, and make the right decisions, um, based out of, it's almost like they're, uh, they're, they something within their, their minds, their souls or whatever, they can go out and hunt a spot or whatever and just know whether they're doing it right or not i'm telling you that there's a sixth sense or whatever you want to call out there that i believe at the best hunters have um and not everyone has it so that would be like my number one thing and i've i've told other guys that i've seen that in them before and a lot of people just almost laugh at me but i'm telling you guiding as many people as i have it's a true thing so that that is something to uh if you uh if you can pick up on just that that sense of of just seeing the woods in a different way and just getting good a good feel on how to hunt and doing am I doing things right or not you know that would be my number one um number two um talking maybe woodsmanship and that um i I really think like uh you you probably really have to just well, there's, I don't know if I'm going to, let me just back up a little bit. There's, there's several things. I'm, I don't know if after, if I'm going to be able to rank them right after this, 
But I think being able to uh, to go out into an area and just uh, just be comfortable out there and being able to like there's a lot of guys that and I say guys I'm sure there's women too but um, there's so many people out there that are like gifted into like going to different states and uh, just being able to read read sign quickly um, and and being able to adapt to like different kinds of habitats. Like there's, there's another side of woodsmanship that, that I don't even know, like if that's something I have, but I see a lot of other people have that. I think that's a really cool thing. Um, I also think like, uh, just, it sounds crazy, but like, I love to like see old timers that, and they're still, I still guide some of them. Like, they only thing they go into the woods with is like a compass. Like to me, I think that's, nobody's doing that anymore but like someone that can just get if get in and out of the woods um more knows how to to watch the sun and you know different things that like those old school tactics that can get you in and out of the woods you know i think that's that's really cool too um and then you know maybe lastly i would i would have to say um i think people that that are able to you know, to probably focus a lot just on like different weather conditions and that in certain areas. Um, it may not relate so much to woodsmanship, but like knowing how, uh, deer move, uh, like for instance, you can get a cold front here in, you know, October, it can be really good, but if you get a cold front here in December and I don't know about where you guys are from, but it actually shuts down deer movement. Like I think people that have really good senses and woodsmanship um, uh, that can relate to how deer move in certain weather conditions. I really think that that's a that's a strong um, a strong factor and, and crucial crucial uh, things to have. I, I might be a little bit off as woodsmanship on some of those, but that's probably those are some things that that really mean something to me. No, I think they were great, and and you kind of hit into my one of my last and final questions for you. Um, what would be the one thing that you would recommend people who are trying to increase their woodsmanship go out and do? You know, I I think at least every now and then, put your phone away and uh, bring a compass, and just to go back into an area. Uh, go out there maybe with a little bit more of like a raw mindset and because you know we brought up technology a little bit it just it truly does make it so much easier like i once again like guiding uh something we do a lot is we give out waypoints and it's you know we're on our phones so much throughout the day but yet you see so many people that are in the woods all they're doing is looking on their phone and I think, you know, some of us are missing out on things because we're counting on our phones to get us in and out. We're probably missing out on sign and just being able to read the woods in different ways. Like, I think just doing it kind of like the old timers did every now and then, uh, you know, I really think it would do more more good than harm for you, to be honest. I couldn't agree more. I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, look, <laughs> look up, right. Look up and ahead of you versus yep. at the phone, maybe use the phone to see, okay, I should go check out this point and then put it in your pocket yep. and go for a walk. Right. And then just slow down and, 
and notice the brows, notice the trails, notice betting, whatever. Um, I couldn't agree more. That's where at least where I find some some of my success is by, like you said, just looking. Yep. No, that's what I mean. Uh, If you just put everything away and use your eyes, there's just so much that can be observed. Like, uh, it's just, it's, it's actually mind boggling. If, if you really start to, you know, pursue whitetails, their behavior, uh, their habitat and all that, like every step in the woods, I feel like you're almost learning something every step some days. And agree more, Steve. Hey, I really appreciate your time tonight. Um, we have a, a heck of a lot of information that to roll out in this podcast and, uh, and you did an awesome job. I, I normally wrap up each one of these shows with um, a single question. So not like you haven't had enough questions, but I got one more for you. That's fine. Go, go right at it. All right. Wondering what your favorite tree is. This could favorite be for, tree. yep. could be for hunting. could be for, yep. you know, nope. food, cover, habitat, whatever. It could be something you like looking at when you drive down the highway. Um, my Even favorite, nope, so. yep, nope, you're, you're good to go. My favorite tree would be a hemlock tree. All um, right. uh, I didn't bring up hemlocks, but, uh, like say for instance, you know, I brought up beach brush, but yet you throw a hemlock, whether it's inside a beach brush or, uh, in a clear cut, you're almost 99% of the time there'll be a deer bed under a hemlock as long as it's flat enough or whatever. Uh, and, and I'm, there's just something special to me. This probably sounds funny, but like I love to just sometimes go under a hemlock and just sit, whether I'm praying or, or just, it's like, uh, there's, there's a beautiness to it that I really can't explain. There's like a smell too that, um, the hemlocks have a little bit of like a pine scent, but it's a little different, but it's, there's like just certain things like that out in the outdoors that like, uh, you know, I really don't talk about, but like, they almost like do something inside of me or kind of brighten my soul. And I would have to say the hemlock, like I just love to be like, okay, I'm going to go check that hemlock out. Uh, see if there's a bed under it. Can't tell you how many times I found a shed under a hemlock. And then if none of that stuff shows, I, I'll still, you know, often just take a seat under there. It's almost usually a real dry spot and it's just, it's like, uh, at least in the woods that where I'm from, it's just almost like a special tree to me. Great answer. That's one <laughs> of our, our favorite things is to get different answers from, and I don't think we've ever had hemlock, Jared. So that's, that's uh, a new one for what, 160 some episodes. That's a new one. So pretty cool. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad, I'm glad it's something different for once. <laughs> Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I know when we first uh, reached out, you're like, well, I'm just a public land guy. I don't know how much I can help, but honestly, <laughs> our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. And I really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, spending a little bit of it with us. Well, thanks so much for having me, guys. And uh, anytime you, you want to chat again, I'm, I'll be ready. I, I really enjoyed it. So let our listeners know where they can find you and follow along and uh, maybe check you out for, for a hunt someday. Sure. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Shirk's Guide Service. It's S-H-E-R-K apostrophe S. Uh, Instagram, it's Shirk's Guide Service, basically all one word with no apostrophe. I also have a website, uh, shirksguideservice.com. So uh, 
those are like my three ways of contact. Um, I, I love, uh, especially I love it when I get like new followers and I love it when I, uh, get like a new message from someone new, just, Hey, I'm following you. And, you know, I, I'm constantly interacting with different hunters and it's just, I just feel blessed to just be able to, to have the, that ability and to be like a person that gets reached out to and to to be somewhat of a help for for hunters like i couldn't ask for for anything better than that to be honest with you so i i definitely hope at the least uh you know some people from this will reach out to me now you got a seminar coming up or did that already happen at the sportsman's club um yeah no i got a seminar here uh not far from me in smithport pennsylvania you're probably going to see me doing a lot more of them um i'm I've turned a lot of them down throughout the years just because uh, it's not something that, I don't know, maybe it might even been a confidence thing or whatever, but I'm getting so much more uh, uh, interest in it. I I think I'm just going to kind of see what happens and start doing them more. So uh, uh, if, if the one here in Smithport isn't going to be uh, anywhere near some of the listeners, uh, I do think eventually, you know, I just did one in Vermont. Um, just a couple weeks ago. So, uh, I'll, I'll honestly be willing to travel all over the place to do them. I, I really enjoy it. Excellent. Well, I'm down here by Pittsburgh and we're going to make it up to something. Eventually I want to hook up with awesome. you and pick your brain a little bit. So, but awesome, thanks again, guys. Steve, we'll let you go. Took up a lot of your time and we really appreciate it. Thank you, all Steve. Right, well, God bless you. You guys have a great night. God bless you too. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at habitatpodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, You know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras. The Habitat Hook from Nation's Creations. Packer Max Cultipackers. Afflictor Broadheads. Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com. And Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.